0: Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is Mornings with Zerlina. Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. Joining us today is Amanda Carpenter, columnist for The Bulwark. I want to sort of take what we were just talking about with um, our legal analyst, Renato Moriarty, and Move over to the secret service aspect of this particular story as it relates to the January 6th investigation, Amanda, because I don't know about you, but yesterday I was just sitting thinking about. How really nothing is ever deleted, like on your phone, (laughs) like, you know, you you know, people get in a lot of trouble because they try to delete things that um, would be bad for them later off their phones and they are unsuccessful. It's always saved somewhere. Or there's metadata or something. But somehow, miraculously, and coincidentally, um, the Secret Service texts from probably the two most important days in their history, other than maybe JFK's assassination, um, are missing. They're deleted. And unrecoverable, which seems weird. Um, What is your read on this really, you know, truly developing story, because it's something that broke in the middle of these hearings that was a surprise that is still very much unfolding.
1: Yeah, good morning, Zerlina. Yeah, it does sound really unbelievable in the truest sense of the word. Uh, But first, I think it's important to take more of a 30,000-foot level to examine the purpose of the Secret Service and how weird this is, right? Because the Secret Service primarily has two duties protect the president, protect the vice president. And then they also have a mandate to investigate financial crimes, which uh, involves a lot of cyber tracking, which they definitely know how to do. And so what happened on January 6th is that those two primary duties to protect the president and vice president came into conflict because the president orchestrated a pressure campaign against the vice president to stop the peaceful transfer of power that culminated in a mob attack on the Hill, right? That's what happened. It was Trump versus Pence. And so, of course, we should examine what the Secret Service did that day. Of course, their communications were important and everybody knew it at that time. I mean, this isn't the first time they've been asked to produce these communications. Trump was impeached uh, in 2021. There were requests from multiple congressional committees to all the agencies housed inside the Department of Homeland Security and other agencies to preserve records. The Secret Service is inside the Department of Circuit uh, DHS. They got those letters. Those started going out in mid-January. They were reminded again on January 25th. And then we found out uh, two days ago that the Secret Service, by its own admission, says they started engaging in their process supposedly to migrate data on the 27th, like in defiance of those letters from congressional committees on top of the requirements they already had under the Federal Records Act to preserve yep. those documents. I mean, it is a really wild story. And I, I think you're right. I I don't believe all that data is gone forever. Um, But I do think we're going to be hearing a lot more about a person named Tony Ornato, who had a highly unusual position inside the Trump White House. He was the head of the Secret Service detail in the Trump White House. And then he accepted a political appointment to run White House operations for Trump, which also oversaw the secret security. And he was the one where Cassidy Hutchinson testified under oath at length about her communications with him about what occurred, you know, when Donald Trump made the request that the Secret Service take him to the Capitol on January 6th, and that request was rebuffed, and there's allegedly an altercation. Tony Arnato and Bobby Engel, another member of the Secret Service, are the ones she said told her about that. And so, of course, there were some kind of communications. And weirdly, Tony Ornato is now back at the secret service and so you know there's a lot of questions about what is going on there especially given the history that the secret service has had of uh failing quite frankly on the job under president obama with a series of serious security missteps that we can talk more about but just underscores the fact that this agency has a lot of problems and this particular scandal is not going away anytime soon
0: Let's actually remind people about that, because if you didn't read Carol Lenning's book or, um, you know, remember back that far to the Obama administration, I know a lot has happened in, in the subsequent years, you guys. So if you forgot, um, don't worry. Um, <laughs> help us understand, because there were there were to your to your point, some scandals there. they, they I mean, they were acting all kinds of ways all around the world, frankly.
1: In yeah, and I think that's the the one that hops to mind first of all because there was a scandal where um, a number of agents were going on abroad. They you know they would get there the day before to kind of case out the joint before Obama and the rest of the high level uh, staff would get there. And there was an incident where a number of them hired prostitutes, brought them back to the hotel room. There's altercations with the police. That that's the big one that put a black eye. On the secret service that people remember but what i remember and i wonder if you do too there was a series of fence jumpers uh yes. through the obama administration like do you remember it's like people kept jumping the fence yes and getting close to the white house there was one incident where a man actually got into the white house with a knife i remember that, that. Is un- I mean, it was unbelievable and somehow it just kind of got swept under the rug and a lot of this I know about, you know, I read about it at the time, but I was refreshed by Carol Lennox reporting in zero mm-hmm. fail, uh, which is so wonderful. But the reason that happened essentially like the secret service, they didn't have their radios turned on to the right level. Nobody knew what was happening. And so this guy legit got, broke into the white house, got into the interior rooms with a knife. It is miraculous that nothing terrible happened, but that wasn't the first incident, right? Like right. there was another time where a man, uh drove up outside the white house and shot it up i mean bullet holes in the window where michelle obama got her coffee thank goodness uh obama or barack and michelle weren't there at the time but their children were their children were coming into it and even worse than that because the secret service wanted to like kind of cover it up they fell down on the job they didn't even tell obama about it until days later michelle got details about it from her valet I mean, that was unbelievable. And then there was another one that I remember where there was an active bomb investigation and somebody at the Secret Service had just got a big promotion. They were all drinking at Fado, this you know bar in Chinatown, drinking a lot. And the directors drove into the crime scene drunk. I mean, it was again and again and again. And now under the Trump administration, you kind of have this weird, situation where the head of the secret service becomes a political appointee and is just chummy chummy you know people like Cassidy Hutchison talking about everything that gossiping about what happened uh, on January 6th and now he's just back on the job it seems pretty weird
0: it is really weird it's very strange um very strange I mean just just the idea that um they would they're, so so even Carol Lennox, like the, the little anecdotes that she has about MAGA hats being on their desks, mm-hmm. that's very strange.
1: That, yeah, you it, wouldn't be we, allowed to do that necessarily in any other government office, right? Like right. You're not supposed to have pictures up about who you're going to vote for. There's rules against this sort of thing. But the Secret Service in particular has gotten away with a, so much rule-breaking. And, you know, is it because of the kind of macho culture they have? Mm-hmm. Where they all slap each other on the back and cover up for one another, uh, they, you know. Obama said something at the time. It's like you don't have enough women in the force, and I, I you know, I kind of like that because I do think mm-hmm. women are a moderating factor on this kind of boorishness. But it, it goes so much deeper than that.
0: Yeah, it's really, really true. I mean, they definitely do need more, more women. Well, pff, we women should be in charge. I think it's a, what is it? A Samantha Beebe joke, um, and she cites her therapist as as the source of this joke, which is. How about we all just agree we put women in charge for 25 years and if it, it things are not better we'll go back but just like give us 25 years and I <laughs> I think <laughs> pretty pretty confident it will be better um one of the other things um we were talking about with Renato is just you know today's hearings in particular I was trying to come up with like the right parallel I'm I'm still having trouble Um, one of the, one of the parallels I at least see, and I'm not saying that this is the perfect parallel, I'm not saying this is the perfect comparison, but at least it helps sort of put it clearly in your mind that like the image of Trump watching the insurrection, like we're all sort of watching it, right? But like watching this all unfold or at least seeing headlines about what's happening at the Capitol on your phone, um, and then rewinding it back. Or, you know, gleefully being happy about it? Like, I don't know anybody that was happy watching the insurrection. But apparently, Donald Trump was. I mean, how do you even begin to process that? Because that's not, like, political. That's, like, that's something else. That's, like, on a human level, I can't understand that.
1: Well, tonight we are going to find out what happened during those 187 minutes between when the Capitol was breached and the insurrection was finally put down. And I don't expect the committee members to actually be able to go inside Donald Trump's head and determine what he was actually thinking. But the thing that has always stuck out to me that is provable, that we know, that is demonstrable is that while all this was going on, he was watching it on Fox News. He was getting all kinds of pleas from people at the Capitol to please send help. Even Kevin McCarthy admits to this. The White House was being inundated with requests for the president to do something. And it wasn't that he did nothing. He did do one thing. He posted a tweet saying Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do the right thing, as it is very likely he knew Mike Pence was being whisked away to safety by by the security officers while the mob was within 40 feet of getting their hands on him. That's what Trump did. That is what Trump affirmatively did. He took in all the information that the capitals was under attack, that Mike Pence was in danger and posted a tweet to egg it on that specifically targeted Mike Pence. That is what he did. And, you know, the rest to me is just details and I am going to be watching for all those details tonight.
0: Um, One of the other things I've been following Um, And we're talking with Renato about all of the different legal theories and ways in which, you know, this could all unfold. But one of the things that's been quite interesting to me is that throughout the course of these hearings, and I've said this repeatedly throughout the course of the hearings, my expectations were kind of low going in. I wasn't going in with this expectation that there was going to be these, it was going to be this dramatic, that there was going to be this much new information and, and detail Um, And also just the presentation has been very clean and tight Um, in terms of how the committee is going methodically through laying out the case. There has been reporting and polling showing that it is breaking through. Do you get the sense that this is going to be sort of a shift, Um, you know, even after a hearing like today's where you're going to really be able to see, as to your point, what Donald Trump actually did do and, and be able to process that as a voter like. That seems, you know, they're calling it a dereliction of duty, but I think that the the totality of these hearings has to have broken through um, into the mind of the American voter, um, yeah. at least according to early polling.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I'm watching in particular the, you know, w- what I consider to be persuadable Republicans, uh, people that may have supported Trump in 2016 and 2020, but are persuadable to the idea that this, this is too much. And I think there's a lot of evidence of this. Now, will Trump voters ever come out and say to a pollster, yes, you know what, I diligently watched all the January 6th committee hearings and it, it totally changed my mind. I was wrong to back him. Absolutely not. That is not going to happen. But what I have heard, uh, and I've watched some focus groups and just picked up on you know the general atmosphere is that there is fatigue. Uh, people think it's time to move on, let this thing go. And that's because, you know, people who are upset about this have kept this issue very salient. Like we've pushed it to the top, you know, of the public's mind, whether people want to admit it or not, you can't escape these revelations. Like they may not be watching it, but they're getting chatter on their, uh, social media feeds or hearing other people talk about it. They're cognizant of what is going on. And you hear them say things like, well, you know what? Trump won't let it go. Uh, the country is too divided. Trump, you know, people have just made up their minds about Trump and it's sad. I liked him, but he's not, he may not be the best person for us going forward. Right? Like they want their, I won't say their want because they're not giving up on Trump, but they are willing to entertain the idea that there may be other Trumpy MAGA candidates who could sell that same kind of Trump vision better than Trump. Right? Which is why you see this sort of Ron DeSantis bubble coming out of nowhere, you know, the Florida governor. Um, and so people are, are willing to look. They would like to say, yo, you know what? That 2016 primary is very fun. Like, let, let's have another one like that uh, generate that excitement again. Now, I personally think that's, uh, you know, under the current leadership of the Republican National Committee, I don't see a real competitive primary um, it's just going to be very hard for someone like the chairman Rana Romney McDaniel to actually put on a primary that does allow the candidates to fairly compete against Trump, should he choose to run, which I'm not sure why he wouldn't, because once you have such a valuable asset like the Republican Party under your control, there's not a lot of reason to relinquish it. Um, but that all goes to say the hearings are having an effect. And then there's all the other noise sort of going around about extremist Republicans who aren't named Trump, but do sort of carry on that election denying banner who are going to be very problematic in the midterms.
0: more about the focus groups you mentioned. So um, give us some insights. I mean, I, I, I've, I've definitely seen some focus groups. Um, I know Elise Jordan has also um, done some focus groups throughout the course of the last several months um, around the road decision. As well. I mean, what are focus groups saying? Are people keyed in or are they only talking about gas prices? Because polling doesn't necessarily give you real insight into what people are really thinking. Polling is like I always think about polling as a snapshot of what people thought when they were called, which may change, you know, week to week Um, as we every week, you know, look at our grocery bills and our gas bills what are focus groups saying in terms of what they are paying attention to? Because it feels to me like, you know, I sometimes have to force myself out of the bubble of the fact that this is my job and I'm paying attention to every single development.
1: Yeah, well, um, first of all, I'd recommend a podcast by my colleague, Sarah Longwell, called The Focus Groups, uh, which she talks to these people and then she gets an expert to analyze what they say. And so the focus groups that I was asked to look at had to do with Trump, people who supported Trump in 2016 and 2020, and how they were feeling about things going forward. So that's really the the people I have been focusing on. But um, you know, generally, yeah, they're not super keyed into it, but they have a very strong awareness of what is going on. And I think it, it's important to always acknowledge the atmosphere that voters live in, whether they're in a red state or a city. You know, they're not, you know, are they diligently watching C-SPAN and tuning in to Rachel Maddow and on Sirius XM in the morning? No, but there's this this sort of cultural soup that they live in. And inflation, you know, if you're in a red state and a lot of people you know, who do watch Fox News, that's part of the general conversation. It's inflation. It's crime. It's Joe Biden is senile. And that's kind of the end of it. I would say that those three messages are extremely strong. Um among you know the trump voters going into the midterms but that said you know you take a place like pennsylvania if you're upset with inflation does that lead you to vote for dr oz over john fetterman for senate like just because what people are mad about isn't always translating to the candidates that are being offered this fall
0: It's a really good point. You're like, are you going to pull the lever for Dr. Oz? Is that what you're going to (laughs) do? You think that's going to lead to better gas prices? I have questions. Um, The other thing, um, you know, we've been talking about over the course of the last several months is just the fallout of the Roe versus Wade decision. And I always, you know, like to sort of set up this conversation with saying that, you know, for me, it's an issue of bodily autonomy and like all of the like you know nuanced debate over specific policies like 10 weeks 12 weeks six weeks all of that like i find uh this is sort of the the fundamental point but i also think that like even if you're personally pro-life um that's different than the government policy and one of the things about the government policy in this moment is just these horrific stories um, a woman who was miscarrying but they delayed Caring for mm-hmm. her um, for fear of liability, and she you know basically let her get sicker and sicker until she was on a ventilator um, there's also the ten year old rape survivor who had to travel across state lines in order to seek out an abortion. I think the stories in the abstract are really really different than when you're reading the real true stories um, as we've had as we have over the past couple of weeks. How is that factoring in? To, you know, some of what people are thinking, um, you know, these Trump voters who obviously Trump's behavior is a large part of why they may not you know, support him or Republicans in the next election cycle. But there's a, there's also these other culture issues that have become really, really real. They're not abstract anymore.
1: Yeah, well, you got to remember that the deal that Trump made with evangelicals who this issue is very important was that he would appoint pro-life judges who would deliver exactly the ruling that we saw. But what I am seeing in conversations with, you know, my other pro-life friends is that you know, there is there are a lot of scenarios that pro-life leaders have never had to confront while they were lobbying for the overturn of overturning of Roe versus Wade and that, and these are these situations. What happened, what is this pro-life position when a 10 year old girl is raped and becomes pregnant? I mean, you will still see people on the airwaves saying, well, you know, the, the it's terrible but that child should have to carry the baby. I want, we need to have the conversations about what is actually viable, right? Like put a put aside the, the terror of being raped. I understand that conversation. It is not medically in the interest of a 10 year old girl who has not developed to care of baby. Like that's just not possible. And there's other situations like that about women bleeding out due to miscarriage that aren't getting medical treatment they need because the pro life community has never actually been forced to think through these scenarios. And so that is, those are conversations that are definitely happening with pro-life women that I know and I imagine are happening across the country.
0: It's such an important point. I think that you know everything is different in the abstract. And when people are like, no, 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 what's the real impact of this policy? And we're living through that with these stories become so much more clear. Amanda Carpenter of The Bulwark, thank you so much for being here. It's always great to talk to you. Um, please stay safe out there and enjoy the hearing. Mornings with Net Check in for new episodes every weekday.